Oh, you guys are all right. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's perfect. It's okay. You're going to be right back there, ain't you? Oh, what an incredible day, huh? Isn't God good? Is school tomorrow? You know what the best thing about being out of school? You don't got none of that. That was probably... There ain't no kids in here, is there? That was probably the worst day of my life. The first day of school. And the best day was the last day of school. I was not so good at school. I'm sure all your kids are really good at it. But <coughs> Recess was probably my favorite when we had such a thing. <coughs> I won't tell him. I'll keep it on the down low. But if he's like his father, he's doomed. <laughs> all right, if you got your Bibles, open up Revelation chapter 1. We're going to finish... Uh, um, Chapter 1 for sure, and we're going to take a look at the first letter to the first church, church at Ephesus. So let's take a look. Um, chapter 1, verse 19, is the key to unlocking the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, 19 is the key. It says, <clears throat> write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. Meditata. So when we look at chapter 1, verse 19... That's the division of the entire book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen. Chapter 1, right? What did he see? Vision of Jesus Christ. Remember all those attributes of things we talked about as we looked at chapter 1. Write the things which are. That's chapter 2 and 3. Seven letters to seven churches. The things that were taking place at the time that John wrote the book. The things which are. And then he said, write down the things which will take place. Meditata. After these things, that is from chapter 4 to chapter 22, the things that will take place after these things. Now, when we get to chapter 4, I'm going to say that it's what takes place after the church. And we'll work our our way through that concept, what that concept means. Literally what it means to me, chapter 4, the rapture happens. Chapter 5, the church is in heaven. Chapter 6, the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, chapter 19, the end of the tribulation. Chapter 20, the beginning of the kingdom. End of chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. Chapter 21, 22, new heaven, new earth. Everybody with me? So we'll probably go over a little bit over that every week. But that's the key. 19 tells us what's going on. And then here's the other thing that we want to make sure we understand about the Word of God. And one of the key things, one of the things I talk about in our apologetics class <laughs> is that the principium ascendi, the The essential principle foundation of our faith is the Word of God. The most, that's the concrete, the rock that we hold ourselves to. Okay, everybody with me? So if it's in the Word, right on, perfect, great, that's what we want to hold to. If it's not in the Word, we hold on to that pretty loose. Everybody with me? If the Word of God teaches it, that's it. It's set. That's concrete. That's God's Word. If the Word of God doesn't, then i got to back off of that. i got to say, well, this is my opinion. This is what I, how I think all this works together. But everything's got to be found in the Word. <laughs> if the Word of God isn't that concrete uh, um, rock that we can go, okay, what is sin? And I go to the Word of God, it's going to tell me that, right? Now, I might not like what it says. I might say, you know, I don't think that's 
fair, that's right, but I will be able to tell what it says. Okay, it's, it's English. We all know how to read it. So I can see exactly what the Word's saying. So when I want to understand something, I want to go to the Word of God. Now earlier we saw that the Scripture told us the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, in verse 20 of chapter 1, what's it say? The mystery of the lampstand and the stars. He's going to tell us what it means. So we don't need somebody else to tell us what it means if the Bible does that for us, right? If the Bible says the lampstands are the church and the stars are the angels, then we can stand by that. Now we might disagree what the angels mean, and that's okay. There's space in there where we can interpret. But if the Bible tells us that's the final word, right? Okay, are you with me? So, so there are several things that, that we got to <clears throat> allow that to be on. For example, Jesus Christ told us in the Word of God, nobody will know the day or the time. Is that right or wrong? So I want to know how in the world Christians make bestsellers out of people who tell you what day Christ is going to return. Because the Bible, the essential principle of our faith, said nobody's going to know. And then somebody says, wait a minute, I discovered the mystery I solved the problem. The Bible didn't really mean nobody's going to know. It meant everybody but me. But somehow I've put it all together. You guys see what I'm saying? So that's an easy one to pick on. But there's a lot of things where people do that. Where the Bible clearly says A. And people come along later and say, no, that's not right. It's really B. We want to be careful about that. Make the Word of God our ultimate foundation. Our ultimate reality. If the Word says it. I align with the word, not the other way around. I don't say, well, now in the 20th century, that can't be right, so I'm going to change the word to align with me. That doesn't work, right? If that's how it is, folks, pitch it, because it isn't true. If it's true, then it's all true, every drop, and we have to conform to what the word of God teaches. So we want to understand that. In verse 20, he says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. Shows Jesus' control, right? Control over the universe. (coughs) Control over the angels. When we come into the rest of the book, especially from chapter 6 through 19, every time you turn around, he's going to be saying, I told the angel to go do this. I told the angel to go do that. Who's in control of it all? Who's putting it all together? Who's working out his purpose and plan for history? That's God, right? Jesus Christ is in control. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand And the seven golden lampstands. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Some people struggle with that. And I told you before when we looked at this, I used to think the angels were were the pastors. The angels of the churches must be the pastors. Well, then you start thinking about it. Why would I change what angels means in chapter 1, but not in 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Angels is going to be spoken about over and over again, right? (laughs) Here's the challenge, folks, when we come to comprehend and understand what the Word of God says. And that is not to paint the Word of God by our tradition, but to allow the Word of God to make our tradition. Does that make sense? So sometimes we come, you know, I'd say, well, I was always taught that the angels were the pastors. But is that what the word says well uh, you can make an argument for it i'm not saying you can't but what's the plain reading plain reading he says is the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches you mean there's angels of churches well i don't know but there's some mysteries in the bible isn't there 
For example, you read 1 Corinthians, and Paul says that when a woman prophesies in the church, that she should have her head covered. Why? It says this phrase, kind of interesting. She should have her head covered for the angels. And we go, what's that mean? And we, we think, I don't know. But here's what I do know. There's every once in a while when the Bible parts the curtains and lets us look into the spiritual realm. Right? And we hear about spiritual warfare. In chapter 12 of Revelation, we're going to read about war breaking out in heaven. That's kind of crazy, right? We're going to, we read in, first, uh, or in Colossians chapter 1 <coughs> that Jesus Christ created all things, including all different kinds of angels. And there's several different words used in association with those angels. So there's like a hierarchy of angelic beings that we don't even understand. But according to Corinthians, there's at least the concept that the angels are present and a part of service within a church, isn't there? And not only that, Paul would go on to say, you know, these mysteries of grace and of faith and of God's salvation of the church, these are things that angels desire to understand. You guys know the scripture talks about that? So that, so that angels are, are interested because for an angel, there's no redemption. You chose the devil, you're lost. You chose God, you're good, and there's no switching. You don't switch teams. But on earth, it's a little different. There's redemption. They get to see what grace looks like, and they learn those things from a church. And you know that the Bible tells us that one day, the church, men, the saved, the redeemed, are going to judge the angels. Man. So we can at least acknowledge the reality that there are things that take place in the supernatural realm that we don't fully grasp. So could there be angels of the churches? Angels who protect it? Angels who watch over it? Angels who are a part of it? Angels who certainly want to look into it and, and comprehend the things of grace? For sure. For sure. So the idea that, that, that the letters are written <coughs> to the angels of the churches only indicates to me that not only is God speaking to you and I as the church, but he's also speaking to that supernatural realm, to the angels. Doesn't God still teach them? Doesn't God still talk to them? Doesn't God still direct them? Doesn't he hold them in his hand? So, and I think the word, it just simply says that. Are you guys with me? So if it, if it says it simply, I don't know why I need to complicate it. There's angels. They're a part of the church. I don't see them. You don't see them. But we all have heard stories, right? I got a flat tire and out of nowhere this guy showed up. Changed my tire. I had a horrible experience. I blew, a, <laughs> I blew the front tire on my trailer and ripped out my black tank. You guys know what that is? That's bad. Black tank is the tank you never want to empty on your trailer. See, the gray tank is where all the water from your sink goes. The black tank, that's much worse. So I'm driving down the road, coming home from camping with a full tank. When I get home, I dump it. And then I get a flat tire and I don't have to change the tank no more. Because now it is blown up all over the road. Now, how popular do you think I am with everybody driving down that road? (laughs) (coughs) For like 
I don't know. It probably took me a quarter mile to get stopped for a couple of reasons. I'm like, I don't want to stop too close to what just happened. <laughs> so I get over. Finally, I pull over, and this guy pulls up right behind me. <clears throat> and literally, he stops. He knows exactly what happened. He was behind me. His windshield wipers are going. <laughs> he, says, uh, he, says, he says, man, you want a hand? I got an impact wrench and a jack. I'm like, oh, cool, because I don't know where mine is. So that'd be awesome. So he gets out of the jack. Tires You want to be out of there as soon as possible when that, if that ever happens to you. Now, he didn't do the work, and I don't blame him for that. I'd have done the same thing. Here's the impact wrench, bro. Here's the jack. Yeah, I'll, I'll root you on from here. <coughs> so we get that tire all changed. Boom, he gets him and his kid stop, help me out, get back in his truck, take off. You know, Bible says in the book of Hebrews, right? Be careful to entertain strangers. Why? Because sometimes you've entertained angels unaware. We don't want to forget about that reality, right? We don't want to forget about that reality. So it tells us, and the seven lampstands. What are the seven lampstands? Do we have to wonder? Seven lampstands are the seven churches, right? Lampstands are the churches. Angels are the stars. And remember last time, Jesus is the sun. So Jesus is, the, is where light is manifest. The stars reflect the light, right? The candlestick, they, they reflect light. Jesus is the light, but we're all light bearers. The Bible calls us, or says that we are created in, in the image of God, right? Well, maybe what it's talking about when it says we're created in the image of God is that we're image bearers. We are capable of reflecting the image of God. An animal can't reflect the image of God. It can reflect God's beauty, God's wisdom, God's... A lot of different, maybe different attributes of God, but it can't reflect his attributes in, in how they live their life and the things that they do. So <coughs> mankind becomes an image bearer, angels, image bearers, but God himself is the light. Okay, everybody with me? So chapter 1, verse 19 is the outline of the book. <coughs> and wherever we can, we want the Bible to tell us what it means. Fair? We let the Bible tell us what's going on. Okay, so it said, write down the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Just in case we would miss it, chapter 4, verse 1 begins like this. Metatauta. What was the third division of the book? Write down the things which will take place. Metatauta. <clears throat> so chapter 4 begins with that phrase. Metatauta. After these things, I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven... And the first verse which I heard was like a trumpet <clears throat> speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which will take place after these things. So that's why chapter 4 is the beginning of the future aspect of the book of Revelation. Okay, everybody with me? All right, let's move on. <coughs> so in the letters to the churches, chapter 2, we're going to take a look at the first letter. Chapter 2, the letters to the churches, there is a pattern that takes place all the way through. Now, whenever we have a pattern, <clears throat> we want to notice when the pattern gets different. And we want to ask ourselves, why did the author do something different? Usually it's because he wants to draw our attention to what he's, he's, he's done that is different. Okay, so here's the pattern. The pattern is there's a greeting to the angel of the church of 
There's always a greeting. Then there's a title of the risen Christ. Usually taken from the description in chapter 1. We'll see that when we look at this next section. Then there's a section headed, I know, introducing a praise for what's good about the church. I know your works. I know your whatever. And so Jesus is going to give a commendation. They say, here's what you're doing good. It's like a report card. He does that for every church but one. Uh, then there's a criticism of the church. <clears throat> here's what's going, what you're doing wrong. Here's what you're doing right. Here's what you're doing wrong. He gives a criticism of every church but two. Two churches don't have a criticism. He's going to give a warning. And then he's going to give an exhortation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then finally he's going to give a promise that starts with this phrase. To him who overcomes. And then he gives a promise. So these are the things that we're going to take a look at. We want to notice as we work our way through seven letters to seven churches, <coughs> the second division of the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at this first letter. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and you have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do your first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. First letter, first church, to the church at Ephesus. So let's consider Ephesus. We don't have a lot of time to go into... Um, as much of the background maybe as I would have, but let's, let's remind ourselves. Because God chose seven churches specifically for a reason, right? It's not random. There's something about every church that he says, look, I want you to know something about this church. I want you to know something about their struggle, what's going on with them, why there's an issue with them. And then I want you to learn, make application from what you observe taking place Within that church. So how did Ephesus begin? How did the church start in Ephesus? Turn in your Bibles real quick. Acts chapter 18. And let's look. Chapter 18 and 19. We're going to look at. This is the beginning of the church at Ephesus. How did Ephesus begin? <coughs> in Acts 18, 18. It says, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Chantria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus. And he left uh, them there, Aquila and, Pris and Priscilla. But he himself uh, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer with them, he did not consent. But he took leave and he said, 
I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. So how's it start? Paul goes in with Aquila and Priscilla. He walks into a synagogue one time. He teaches there. He talks to them. Some people get energized about what he's talked about, about Jesus as the Messiah. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla and he leaves and he takes off. That's what Paul does. And that becomes the seed from which a church springs up. Look in chapter 18, verse 24. When Paul leaves, a guy named Apollos comes. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, <coughs> an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had an incomplete knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? He knew what John had said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He understood the baptism of John, which was a baptism to repentance, Prepare your heart for the Lord, right? You with me? He had all that understanding, but he didn't know the end of the story yet. He wasn't aware of the end of the story. So look what it says in verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, those are the people who were traveling with Paul, right? They heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Aquila and Priscilla taught Apollos the whole deal. Now, Apollos was a great teacher of the word in church history traveled around uh, like Paul and spread the gospel <clears throat> so it says and when he desired to cross to Achaia the brethren wrote exhorting disciples to receive him and when he arrived he greatly helped those who believed through grace he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ so first Paul comes and he plants some seeds right then after Paul comes Apollos and he plants some more seeds, right? And he gets a little more grounded, and then he goes on his way. So this is, again, the beginning of the church there in Ephesus. Now, in Acts 19, Paul comes back. You're going to remember this story, right? It says it happened while Apollos was in Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You remember this story? Did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So then Paul says, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized with the baptism of John. What's that make them? Disciples of Apollos, right? They followed Apollos. Apollos was the guy who came after uh, Paul and started. He got straightened out, but he started. So you got 12 guys. According to this section of Scripture, you got 12 guys who are there who were disciples of Apollos, who didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches them about all that Jesus Christ did. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues. They get saved. The church has begun. you got 12 guys. The seeds that were planted by Paul and Apollos have sprouted, and now they become the church. So we have Paul's encounter <coughs> with the disciples in Ephesus. Now, in Acts 19, verse 8, Paul stays there. It says, He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, he spoke evil, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He left and withdrew the disciples. That's the 12 guys who just got saved, right? Got baptized by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for... 
two years. So Paul's teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Now he's, he's there, he stays there two years, he teaches, Ephesus grows. In fact, in the very next section we see, not only does Ephesus grow, there's miracles that, are, that occur through Paul, right? And then there's a revival that takes place through people who are, are wrapped up in the occult. So look what it says. It says, a God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were brought from his body to the sick and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Now, I want you to notice in the beginning, what did it say? Now, God worked. What's that word? Unusual. Does it say usual? No. So God was doing something special through Paul, right? We turn guys on the TV all the time who try to do the same thing. Oh, look, this is the handkerchief I blew my nose in. If you send me 100 bucks, I'll send it to you, and you'll be healed. Now, here's the deal. People do it, right? Why do they do it? Because they're not holding fast to what the Word of God said. What did the Word of God say? The Word of God said that was unusual miracles that God did. Not usual. Unusual. Does God heal today? Absolutely. Does He require somebody else's snot rag to do it? I don't believe He does. I don't believe He does. And that's going to... There's a point to that. So just kind of pack that in the back. If that irritates you, just hold on to it for a minute. I'm going to pour some salt on it in a minute. <coughs> but... Hold on to it. Okay, so there's, there's, un- <laughs> there's, there's, there's a hanky ready right now. All right, the Bible also says in verse 14, And there were seven sons of Sceva, Jew- uh, Jewish chief priests, uh, who cast out evil spirits. And the evil spirit answered and said to him, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed, and they, they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And these became known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So there was unusual miracles that took place. A revival where people turned from their, their books of magic, trying to work magic to solve their problems, and turned to the Lord for the solution of their problems. So we see <clears throat> this took place in Ephesus, right? That's Ephesus. This is the Ephesus we're talking about. Then, in Acts 19, 23-41, we don't have time to look at it, we see a big riot take place. So many people get saved that they stop buying the the, the idols of Diana, the multi-breasted god or goddess of Ephesus. I've had a chance to walk through Ephesus. It's all still there. You can see the, the, the uh, Acropolis where the temple of Diana was. And you can see the, the uh, um, amphitheater where the people poured into and for two hours chanted, Great is Diana of, of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. There's this big... Riot that takes place because so many people are getting saved. That's Ephesus. That's what Ephesus is like. That's what's going on in Ephesus. If you got time, I encourage you to read through the rest of chapter 19. So as we look at this letter to Ephesus, there's six things I want you to hold on to, understand. When we look at the foundation of the letter, it's always going to have something particular about the unveiling of Jesus Christ that is an emphasis for that church. So what did he speak of here in verse 1? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand 
and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What's key for Ephesus? The centrality and control of Jesus Christ. He's in the midst of the church. He's what it's all about. And he's the one who is in control. Jesus is the one who is in control. What's the issue? The issue, guys, for Ephesus is neglected priorities. What's neglected priorities? Well, neglected priorities happen when we take our eyes off of the one who should be central. And we decide we're in control. And when those things happen, we find ourselves in the same place Ephesus was. Now it's not about Christ, for Christ, through Christ that we're doing what we do. Now it's about us, for us, through us. You with me? And Jesus would say, or give the same warning. Okay? So that's the first thing. Notice the centrality and control of Jesus Christ. Second, notice the commendation to the church. This is things the church was doing well. What is it? I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Look, Jesus said, good job on that. He's not saying good job on on, uh, just accepting what everyone says. He's not saying good job because some guy stood up and told you he was a prophet or he was an apostle and you guys have decided to follow him. Good job holding fast to what the Word of God says. What the Word of God teaches. Good job on those things. You break them down into into, uh, uh, three or four things. First, he says, good job on your dedication to the work of God. The Bible says that there are good works that God has ordained that we should walk in them, right? There are good works that God has ordained that we should walk in them. And so God wants us to do good things, yes? God wants us to do good things. God wants us (coughs) to, to follow those direction for Him. So he says, look, I love your dedication. The ESV says it like this, your work, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's a great uh, uh, understanding or great uh, uh, definition of those words that are used. I, he says, man, good job on your work, because it really is work. And he emphasizes, I, emphasizes that with the word toil, which is really laboring to the point of exhaustion. You're, you're into it, man. You're, you're behind the things that are going on. And you have patient endurance. The hupomone. You're willing to bear up under the pressure of the, the requirements, right? Look, when we serve God, it's it going to cost us something. It's at least going to cost us time. It's going to cost us energy. There's no way to do this thing without the loss of those, those things in our life. It is work. It is toil. There is a cost associated with what they do. So Jesus says, good job on your dedication. But secondly, and this is where that area comes back around that I mentioned earlier about the, the, the kind of <clears throat> jokingly about the hanky. He, he uh, commends them for their discernment. Commends them for the discernment. You cannot bear those that are evil. You don't bear with false apostles, false prophets, false teachers. And the Bible tells us, how do we know a false teacher, a false prophet, or a false apostle? Because they teach you things that are not founded in the Word of God. They have to have something else. Something else they point to, something else becomes the uh, principium ascendi. Something else becomes the ultimate reality. 
The ultimate reality is no longer the Bible. The ultimate reality is something else. And, and I've come to show you the way. He says, look, you guys don't put up with those people. You don't put up with false apostles. It's okay when someone is false to tell them that's false. It's okay to say, yeah, that's not in the Bible. It's okay to do those things. In fact, the Bible calls us to that. 1 John 4, <coughs> 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Right? I want you to just think to yourself of the cults and isms that are out there. How many began with a word from a spirit? I can think of two right off the top of my head. And, and one of them is in the news all the time today. You spend any time learning about Islam? Muhammad met a spirit in a cave who said, Hey, write these things that I'm going to tell you. In the 6th century A.D., that means in the late 600s, early 700s. That's when all that occurred. What's the Bible say? Do not believe every spirit, but do what? Test the spirits whether they are of God. How do we know whether or not they're of God? You take what they say, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, and you line it up with the Word of God, and you say, is this what the Word of God says? Yeah, that's not what the Bible says. Then it goes. There's not room for two essential realities, ultimate realities in your life. That, that authority. What's the authority in your life? There's only room for one authority. What is it going to be? And, and we want to stand by that. <coughs> Listen, he says in 1 John, because many false prophets have gone into the world. How? It doesn't just say one. What's it say? Many. So is there a reason to be concerned about what people say or should we just believe everything they say? Paul says the Bereans were more noble than all the others. Why? Because they received the word of God with a hunger, like a hungry man for over dinner. Man, give me the word of God. And if you said something, they said, really? And then they opened up the word and said, is that what the word says? That is noble. That's a noble cause for the believer. To say, yeah, I want the word. Give me the word of God. Good, good, good. And then something, just because I say it, don't make it true. Is it in the Word? Is it what the Word of God teaches? Is it what the Word of God is saying? Many false prophets have gone into the world. By this, you will know the Spirit of God. <laughs> Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now at the time John's writing this, the Gnostics did not believe Jesus was human. They believed Jesus was a spirit, didn't leave footprints, he wasn't really man. One of the important doctrines of the Bible is the fact that Jesus is both God and man. Why? Because if he's not, how in the world can he work a redemption between God and man? The reason that he's God and man is important is because he can take a hand and put it in the hand of God and say, I'm divine. And he can take his other hand and put it in the hand of man and say, I'm man. And I can bridge the gap through his sacrifice between God and man, he can reconcile those of us who have been at war with God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is a spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist. Who fills the Antichrist with his power? What did Daniel say? It's the devil. What's the book of Revelation say? The devil gives him his power. 
So the spirit of Antichrist is already around, folks. Just because the guy's not here doesn't mean the power behind him's not at work in the world, does it? <clears throat> the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, is now already in the world. But you are of God, little children, and, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who's speaking? John, the apostle. What did he do? He wrote several books of what? The Bible. Gospel of John, book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he uses a, a plural pronoun. He who hears us. Who's John talking about? Who's the us? Who are the eyewitnesses? The 12 disciples of Jesus Christ who did what? Who penned together for us this book that we have before us that says, Look, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. We are eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. And let me tell you about what Jesus did. He says, So everyone who is of God hears the words we speak. Everyone who is of God receives what the word of God teaches. Everyone who is of God, what did Jesus say? My sheep do what? Hear my voice. If they're not my sheep, then they don't hear. You with me? So if we pitch the word of God, the word of God has to be essential in the concept of our discernment. Listen to what Peter said. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now this is the first beginning of the church. Is this new? No, it's not nothing new, guys. It's not nothing new. Look, man has always tried to use religion as a, as a means of controlling the people, right? Rome did it, only the, the worship wasn't of Christ. It was worship the emperor. Emperor worship. That's, that's nothing new. That's always gone on. That, those things have always happened. And it's always been false. God said in Deuteronomy 18 and 13, Look, if somebody comes to you and says... This is what God has said. Here's how you know if he's true. Did it happen? If it did not happen, don't be afraid of him. Don't listen to him. Don't follow him. Right? How many lies you got to tell before you're a liar? So if someone told you something that was supposed to happen, it didn't happen, they said it was from God. If God says it's going to happen, what, what happens? What God says happens. If it doesn't, get away from him. He is a false prophet. That's what that's the word of God tells us very clearly. One thing that every cultanism has uh, in its back pocket is that broken prophecies, a list of them. Broken prophecies of people who said this thus saith the Lord and it didn't happen. So the word of God says, yeah, that's how you know true from false. What's the second test in Deuteronomy? If someone says something's going to happen and it does happen, but they tell you to follow a different God than me, he's false. What's a different God than me? Hero Israel, the Lord your God, he is one God. The Lord said, I am he, I am the first and the last. Beside me, there is how many other gods? No other God. The Bible has always clearly taught there is one Yahweh. He is, he is uh, introduced to us three ways. In the Father, 
in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. But every one of them in union says what? There is one Yahweh. Not a bunch of other gods. One God. I, Paul said, or, or yeah, um, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, man, I, I commend you for your discernment. You're not being fooled by false teachers. You're not being drawn away by false teachers. What do these guys do according to Peter? They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the, the way of truth will be blasphemed. <clears throat> By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So he praises them, their dedication, their discernment, and then he praises them for their perseverance. Look what it says. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You didn't give up. You haven't quit. You keep going. And Jesus says, man, that's good. These are good things, right? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Everything we do, does God forget any of it? I might not see it, but does God see it all? Absolutely every bit. Does He forget any of it? None of it. None of it. Who are we looking for praise from, God or men? It needs to be from God. Otherwise, the Word of God teaches us, if you're praised, if you're looking for praise from men, you have your reward. I want praise from God. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, don't you? So, I want to hear it from the Lord. Why do we do what we do? Hopefully, it is for the Lord. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in good season we will reap the reward. What's the next phrase? If you do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's the problem with the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> and the fourth thing he commends them for, their decision about the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now here's the thing about the Nicolaitans. I don't care what you hear somebody say. Nobody knows what that is. Nobody knows who they are. There's a lot of supposition, okay? Some teach that the Nicolaitans are a, a splinter group that comes up from Nicholas, who was one of the six guys in the book of Acts when Stephen was chosen to choose uh, seven men full of the Holy Spirit. One of them was a guy named Nicholas. They, they, the supposition is he got sideways, started teaching false things. So that became the Nicolaitans. Other people say it's of two words, two Greek words put together. Nike. You guys heard of that before, right? Some of us are wearing their shoes which means conquer or victory, and uh, laity, which is the people. To conquer or have victory over or through the people. But whether that mean, what that means exactly, we don't know. Here's what we know. They hated what God hated. And God says, good job. Now, there does not say God hated the Nicolaitans. What's it say? It hated their deeds. God never said, I hated the Nicolaitans. God said, you hate the deeds. You hate what they're doing. I also hate that. They hated what God hated. That, that should be our heart, right? We should be like God. We love what He loves. 
We hate what he hates. He says, love good and abhor evil. That's, that's what God's word teaches. That that's, should be our heart. So that's the, the bit about the Nicolaitans. Okay, <clears throat> the third of the six things we're looking at this phrase in verse 4. The concern of Jesus for his church. In verse 4, he, verse uh, uh, three, 2 and 3, he says, here's what you're doing good, right? Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, <clears throat> that you have left your first love. You're doing all these things and they're really great. But what did, what did God through the, the Apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not love, what? It profits me nothing. If I have not love, it's no good. It's no good. He says, nevertheless, in great contrast to all the good that you're doing, I have this problem with you. He didn't say you lost your love. What did he say? You left it. You left it. You lost your motivation. You lost your reason. Why am I doing the things I'm doing? Once upon a time, when I was first plugging in it, at Joshua Springs, at, at the church that raised me up. Um, I was always looking for something to do, you know, trying to see where they needed some help. But, so I'd go and I'd, and I'd volunteer. We, we, me and Kathy were doing stuff seven nights a week, just plugging in. And then after a while of doing that, we have this little phrase we use as human beings. We start to get what? Burnout. Now, why am I getting burnout? That's right. Because I'm losing my focus. What's central? Who's in control? Who am I serving? But, but when it becomes about people, and I start looking at people, what happens? I start losing, I start losing my, my focus, right? I start losing that which is central. So we want to keep the central thing central. When Jesus was asked... What is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Matthew 22 lays it out for us, right? Verse 34. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your, with all your, oh, everything in your being, you should love God. They left their first love. What's their first love? There's no question about what that is, is there? It all ties back to everything else. If I'm not loving God properly, I can't love people properly. If I'm not loving God properly, I can't have the compassion that I need to have in ministry and what I do. If I'm not loving God properly, I can be busy and I can do a lot of things. But it's not doing me any good because my motivation is not love. And if I don't love God, I don't know Him. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. For everyone who knows God, loves God. Why? Because God is love. So we, that should be something that is manifested in us. If, if it's an area in which we're struggling, just like this church was, <clears throat> he's going to tell us how to get back to that. How is the love of God planted into our life? Is it something we work up? Not according to Romans 5, guys. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Tells, talks to us about our justification our sanctification, 
our, our purification, the struggles that we go through. And then as we come to the close of that section, it says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. What was the struggle with the church at Ephesus? When Paul came to them, they were busy. They're loving the word. They're serving God. But he said, have you heard there is a Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. How long can we go on in our works and having the right attitude if we don't have the Holy Spirit in us? If we're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit. If we're not allowing the Holy Spirit. How do we get that? What do we got to do to have that? Folks, all you got to do is be saved and the Holy Spirit lives in you. Right? But Jesus said this in the Gospel of Luke. He said, look, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How do I get it? I ask. It's not as complicated as we make it. I just got to ask. I just got to recognize there's an issue and then ask And God says, I'll give you the solution. I'll give you the solution. The challenge to the church. Look at verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Three things he says to do. What do we do about it? What do we do? If If this letter to the church at Ephesus impacts us and we say, yeah, that's a problem I have. What is it that Jesus, he's the one writing this, right? He says, John, write. Take this down. Dictation as I speak. So what's he tell the church at Ephesus to do? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember. Remember. What's, what are we remembering? What's the word of God say? 1 John two fifteen through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what's it say? The love of the Father is not in him. We got to pick a side, folks. We got to pick a side. It doesn't say you can't have things in the world. It says you can't what? Love them. We don't hold on to them that tight. It's just stuff. The Calvary Chapel used to have a saying. It went like this. It's all gonna Yeah. It's all gonna burn. It all started breaking down the minute you got it. I had that hardly for one week before it was in the shop for two weeks. If that continues, uh, you don't ever have to worry about me getting hurt on a bike. It spends more time in the shop than it does anywhere else. Everything is falling apart. We, We can't be run by it. It's just stuff, right? Can we enjoy stuff? Absolutely you can. There's nothing wrong with that. You can enjoy it. It can't control you. Does that make sense? Okay, so don't love the things in the world or of the world. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So what is the attitude, this bad attitude we don't want to have in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So it's devil's playbook. He's been using it since his garden. Same deal. <clears throat> Same playbook. So he says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you got off track. What did he tell him to do second? Repent. What does that mean? Change your mind and your conduct. 
You know what, Lord? I'm sorry. I kind of got off track. I really started focusing on all the wrong things. Forgive me and help me be the man you're asking me to be. It's not complicated. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? So we repent. We repent. And then what's the third thing? Return. Return to what you were doing at the beginning. Remember when you first got saved? Remember the excitement? Remember? He says, go back there. Yeah, you can stay there. You can stay in that place that is pouring out. Because if we don't, if you don't remember, repent, and return to your first works, Jesus says, I'm going to come snuff the candle out. I'm going to snuff out the candle. Like, what did the candle represent? Yeah, it's, it's the reflection of the light of Christ through what? In the church, right? The lampstand was the church. Jesus says, I'm going to put the light out. What's that mean? As a church, you're no longer going to be reflecting Jesus Christ. Do we see that reality in churches today? Where there are churches in the world that no longer reflect the light of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do your first works. Remember, return, repent, or I will come. He's not talking about snuffing out your life. What did I tell you the candle was? The candle is the church. Okay, this is not individual, this is corporate. He's talking to the church, right? You with me? He's talking to the church. So what's the comfort he gives? Verse 7, last verse tonight. <clears throat> he who has an ear. How many of us have ears? Let me see the hands. If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to assume you don't know you have an ear. <laughs> so now he's moved from corporate, talking to the whole church, to what? Individual, right? He's moved from corporate, the whole church, to individual. If you got an ear... That's you. He says, if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. God says, for you individuals, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church at Ephesus. Consider whether or not this is an issue in your life and take the advice that God gives. Remember, repent, and return. So this is a message from the Holy Spirit. Then he says, to him who overcomes... I will give to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Oh, Lord, help me to to overcome. I need to be... Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does it mean to overcome? To not have this problem? Okay, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this is what an overcomer is. Someone who believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is an overcomer. 1 John chapter 5. This is what it is to be an overcomer. What is being an overcomer? You have faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you perfectly perform. It doesn't mean I've never lost my first or left my first love or struggled with my motivation in my, in my life. What does it mean to be an overcomer? I'm holding fast to Jesus Christ. He's my everything. So to him who overcomes, what does God say? I'm going to let you eat from what? tree of life sounds like a good meal right i bet that tastes good i hope it's like mangoes i like mangoes what do you guys like now i know everybody don't like mangoes if it tastes like mango my wife is going to have a conniption because she's like i don't want no mango i don't peach hey i don't know what it's going to be like but i can promise you this we're going to want it we're going to want it he says he who overcomes whose faith is in jesus christ I let him eat of the tree of life which is in the midst 
of the paradise of God. That's the comfort that God gives to individuals. That's the first letter to the first church. Only went a little bit over. So what we want to do is to recognize every letter is for us. Every challenge is a chance for us to say corporately as a church, is this us? And if it is, we need to get right. And individually, is this me? I need to get right. Because I want to reflect Jesus Christ in my life. I don't want to have a life that doesn't reflect Him. I don't want to have a life that that people look at and go, that guy can't be a Christian. I want to have a life that is reflecting Him. That is reflecting who He is and what He's done. And how do we get that? How do we know what that looks like? It's right here, right? We hold fast to the Word of God. We hold fast to what the Word teaches. We say, yeah, that sounded good what Jackie said, but I don't know. I'm going to look in the Word and see if it's real. Anybody can be wrong. Anybody can get sideways. But the Word of God, the Bible says, let every man be a liar, but God is always what? Let God be true and every man a liar. God is true. Jesus, one of the ways he's described, is the faithful and true witness. He's never wrong. He's not ever wrong. If it says it, that's what it means. We want to hold fast to it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.